Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I am Boomer. Hi, I'm Allie. <laughs> and I hope it was your wish that the Wishmaster <laughs> jokes continue into the, the next episode. <laughs> it is my wish. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to talk about a couple things up top, and one of them involves Wishmaster. We did publish our list of recommended movies you can stream this Halloween season. Uh, most of them are on Tubi because, of course, they are. Uh, but I don't know. I just wanted to spotlight that again up top. Like 31, 32. <laughs> I did a double feature on Halloween. So 32 movies you can stream at home that are like Halloween season appropriate. Uh, I don't know if y'all had a chance to look at that list, how y'all felt about it. But I was pretty proud of the stuff we've covered over the past year. And I was proud to see Wishmaster on there. I was I, I was also proud. Yes. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> it was a really good list. It was a lot of fun. I unfortunately have not been watching through the list in the order but i have i've watched things i mean i've seen a lot of the list because of uh this podcast so. required homework for you yeah i love that ginger snaps was on it that scream yes. was how we started the season how many screams there were she has so many screams i scream you scream. as many as the law would allow we scream yeah. four times we all come together for the like big what were our favorite movies of the year list. But I think besides that, this is like my favorite thing to put together every year. It's just like looking back at all the horror films. Cause even though this isn't like explicitly a horror podcast, um, except during the month of October where I really buckle mm. down and make everyone just watch that one genre. <laughs> right. Um, we do kind of backslide into it fairly often. Like it's like 75% a horror podcast and 25% something else. So yeah. Yeah. It's, it's easy to slide back into when, you know, we like to focus on loving movies that are weird or low budget or underloved, you know? Yeah. Low budget, big ideas. That's usually something that horror gravitates towards. Uh, the other thing I wanted to highlight up front is that Boomer is back, baby. You've been writing for the website again. Yeah, I was kind of shocked that it had been so long. This might be my second longest gap I've ever done because right at the beginning of quarantine, I wasn't recording, I wasn't writing anything. But you know, now that life is different, I guess I don't know. I haven't gone. I mean, I've gone through some life changes, but none of them that I can draw a direct line to doing more uh, writing. Other than you know, I talked about earlier this year, I finished one of my manuscripts, and then I've been working on another manuscript since then, but. Sometimes when I sit down and I try to write and I don't have anything, I'm like, okay, well, I guess it's time to review the last movie I saw. And because I've been <laughs> seeing more things that actually came out this year, you know, I always like at the end of the year to be able to actually link back to at least a review of a movie that I'm going to list on my top 10. So normally if I'm watching something new, that's when I'll definitely, you know, do a write up of it. But you know, last week we talked about Barbarian, and I know that copy went out on that one. And then this past week I also saw Don't Worry, Darling, which I really liked. The internet is full of hatred for it, though. I do not uh, understand. Well, I wish I could say, I wish that I could understand, but I, <laughs> I say that I don't understand why. But really, you know, if you go to like the Google reviews for this movie and you look at how they sort of do a um, graph of the reviews. There's a line at the one-star mark, and there's a line at the five-star mark. And it's really frustrating, because like, even people that I know have had very divided opinions. And in fact, one person 
I saw them. They gave me a very negative review. And when I mentioned that later to someone else, they were like, oh, well, he loved it whenever we actually saw it. Oh, ran it out. (laughs) Which, you know, it does happen. I remember when I walked out of Mother, I thought it was the best movie of the year. And by the time I got to the car, I hated it. So I've definitely been guilty of that myself in the past. But Don't Worry Darling is it's not necessarily breaking any new ground in I've been telling people mostly about what, you know, there is a very specific genre horror film of the 70s that it's most reminiscent of. And of course, you know, there was also like a 90s teen version of that movie that was part of like post-Scream renaissance. Uh, And I feel like this one in some ways uh, pulls as much from the latter as it does from the former. Should we just say it? Should I just say that this movie is like... definitely. This movie has very, uh, there's a lot of similarity to The Stepford Wives and to Disturbing Behavior, which uh, is not a great movie. But in that one, you know, this is kind of a realization that I had like just, you know, talking about it recently. This movie, uh, you know, okay, you know from the trailers that something is not right, that there's something not accurate about this representation of the society that we're seeing where it's the 50s and all of these perfectly lovely women are married to these you know perfectly handsome men who go off every day in their perfect 50s cars from this like palm springs-esque completely mcm neighborhood across the desert to the victory project where they're working on progressive materials advancement of progressive materials But from the trailer alone and from the first moment, you know that it's not, it can't really be the 50s as we know it because there's like, uh, their society is integrated, you know, they are hosting a party and it is, you know, a mixed race party in what is supposed to be the 50s and there's no discussion of it and no tension about it. So, you know, kind of from the start that something is not right. And really, apparently, (laughs) this movie has been getting a lot of press more about the behind the scenes stuff and it's really i think bled over into people's reading of the film itself i think people really hate the ending too from what i've gathered and i don't i mean i don't really know what they would have wanted that was different you know i i know that this is a strange critique coming from me but a lot of people you know i guess maybe i've just evolved over the years where there was a time when i needed everything to make complete sense and i was not comfortable with ambiguity and i think as i've watched the world become more like that because of the influence of like youtube channels like cinema sins and all of that where like so much criticism now is basically like well why didn't they just take the eagles to mordor like that's so much yeah. of film criticism online now it's just like that's because there's not a film happening if they do it in the way that you're talking about and maybe people hated the ending i mean i i didn't i thought the ending was very exciting and climactic i think a lot of what i am seeing online as far as the discourse is like if you go and you look at these five star and one star ratings all of the one stars are mostly like, I didn't understand this movie, which is a critique you will never hear me say, um, unless I know for a fact <laughs> that the movie is really difficult to understand. Like, this movie is not that difficult to understand. If you don't understand what's happening at the end of this movie, like, did you understand The Matrix? Or are you just, like, telling on yourself, you know? 
the Terminator time travel is more complicated than what's happening in this movie. Um, It's full of really great hallucinative uh, visuals, a lot of psychedelia, a lot of weird things going on, a lot of lost time. And, you know, what I see as far as like people making commentary on it, they're talking about how uh, behind closed doors, this like director was saying th- certain things about one actor to the other and about the other actor to the one. And it's like, it's just so depressing to see all of this like hyperfixation on monitoring a woman director who's like really doing her best from all that we can tell to it's like have you never been in a work environment where a manager had to manage two big egos before like yeah of course she's saying different things to each one like what don't you understand about that sometimes that's how you have to do it that's the that's a workplace environment also you know considering all of the crap male directors pool that is outrageous. I know. David O. Russell has a movie coming out this weekend. Like, that oh, man made fair, Nobody likes him. that either, though. <laughs> yeah, that is true. <laughs> nobody likes it, but it's still happening. Yeah, but yeah. I feel like, you know, a woman is going to be more likely to get canceled for pulling the most mundane, like, bad communication shit. And then exactly. literal rapists can still get funding. It's wild. Yeah. I completely agree. I think that that's what a lot of the backlash to this movie is because all of the five star reviews are like, Harry is hot. And then all of the one star reviews are like, this movie is for femicence, you know, like full of misspellings and making fun of like cat ladies. It's very lowbrow, low hanging fruit. Or Harry is hot, but I didn't understand what was happening. And this lady is mean to him. <laughs> she doesn't, she shouldn't date him. He, sh- he should be dating me. So that's my thoughts on that. I think that it's a much better movie than it's being given credit for. It has an ending that's uh, perfectly satisfactory to me. I, co- I don't think that I could imagine an ending that I would like better without having to change like the whole thing. I think it's like a victim of discourse for me. Like There are certain movies where if enough people are paying attention to it, like I need them to stop talking for six months before I can get to it. Yeah. Because I thought I, I thought the trailer that. had some really interesting images and stuff in it. And there have been other movies this year that I'm glad I saw immediately. I'm thinking specifically of Alex Garland's Men, which has been lumped into the same group as this movie and Promising Young Woman for like not doing feminism correctly by a lot of like leftist online people. Um, and I thought men was perfectly good, but if I had seen it two or three weeks later, I would have had like thousands of strangers opinions rattling around in my head the entire time I was watching it. So I, I'm glad that, uh, I caught that one early cause I really enjoyed it. This one I did not see immediately because people were already talking about it like crazy from its like festival premieres before it even got to like the common folk. So I'm still interested in watching it, especially after reading your review, because I honestly didn't expect you to like it as much as you did. So I'm, um, I think I'm waiting for like a library DVD borrow when it gets like nominated for um, best costume and best set design Oscars in like six months from now, right? (laughs) Which I think is inevitable because all the stylings look really beautiful. Like that whole mid-century modern like cocktail hour thing is really appealing. People are really Uh. into that. I, that's me. I'm people. I'm yeah. the people who are into <laughs> I mean, I, I, I appreciate it as well. Um, moving on from that, 
I had the very strange experience of learning from a very good friend of mine who moved to town recently that he had never seen The Princess Bride. So I have watched no! The Princess Bride and forced him to watch it since uh, we last met. It's just as good as I remember. Maybe better. Yeah. Truly it's one of so the great <laughs> one of the greatest films of all time. Very satisfying, very cute, very um effervescent, and that it just makes you feel lighter and happier and better at the end. I just I've spoken of it highly I I assume it's highly thought of here, but wanted to go ahead and give everyone listening a reminder that if it's been a few years since you saw it, maybe it's time to watch it again. I did get a little sniffy about that movie, um a few weeks ago when we were talking about Willow, because uh, James was comparing Willow to Princess Bride unfavorably. Weird. And what? I think what I was getting defensive about is like, to me, Willow is like the real nerd shit. Like it's like a D&D campaign. Yes. Um, and Princess Bride is like a like really charming rom-com that just happens to be set in that setting. Yes. It is not quite as like fantasy nerd, like rolling the 12 sided die kind of nerdiness. 100%. And then after that conversation, after I was getting defensive uh, on Willow's behalf, I was like, you know what? I also like Princess Bride too. <laughs> Just like uh, I needed like to get defensive on, uh, on in Willow's honor because I think they're two very different kind of movies, but they are from that same like 80s fantasy boom that we all have a lot of affection for. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. So much. I did see that y'all had talked about Willow, and I was very excited for y'all because I I love that one as well. Holds up very well. It's so charming. Uh, The last 40 minutes in particular are just like gnarly, monstrous shit. There's a Phil Tippett monster uh, that attacks the castle, and like there's this witch battle where people's faces are melting off. And then, you know, the first hour is just like full charm offensive, George Lucas swashbuckling. But I, from what I remember, The Princess Bride has like some swashbuckling sword fight stuff, but isn't quite oh, yeah. the same type yeah. of fantasy movie, right? No, it's, it's, like, yeah, it's no. not quite the same. It's not really fantasy. It's just, well, there's some elements, but yeah, it's mostly, you know, charming, swashbuckling adventure sort of thing, not magic. Yeah, it's more of a, there's Miracle Max, but yeah. other than that, no real like magic going on. It's just, you know, it presents itself as historical fiction. Yeah, And it could be, in oh, okay. theory, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, and then the last thing I saw was continuing to work my way through the Coen Brothers movies. We watched, or I watched Burn After Reading, which I had not seen since I saw it in theaters almost 15 years ago. Do we have any thoughts about this one? Never seen it. Uh, really? Middle, middle of the road Coen Brothers for me, but I didn't hate it. It does have the most sort of random events plot. Yes. Of all of them. Which is saying something for real. <laughs> yeah, because they're all very random events, you know, in a lot of ways. But this one in particular seems the most intentionally disjointed as a way to almost kind of make fun of themselves and how disjointed their movies can be. Um, everyone in it is terrible. Mm-hmm. Even the characters, even the, you know, characters who are played by actors who you normally like in these movies. Even like Francis McDormand. Yeah. is like a horribly vapid vain person in this one who like really like you know is very quick to wrath in a way uh in a way that's very amusing and then brad pitt's chad character is so stupid in the funniest mm-hmm. way and even tilda swinton is a is a frigid bitch as she describes someone to someone else and is herself described um it's just there's a lot going on, and everyone is awful, everyone is cruel, everyone is mean. But there were some interesting things about it that I wanted to talk about, like specifically 
in this movie, all of the characters who are hip, which includes George Clooney's very caddish, um, you know, he's sleeping with everyone character, has a Motorola Razor. And at one point, whenever um, Frances McDormand's character is meeting a man off of internet dating, which is discussed a lot in the movie because it was relatively new at the time, she's meeting someone at the National Mall. And both times that she goes, there's a man furiously texting on his, like, uh, Blackberry. And that person is meant to be very out of the ordinary. And it's fascinating to look at, like, one of the last movies before that just became how things are. Yeah. Also, it was very brief in this movie. Uh, but it did make me think of something that I've noticed while watching these Coen Brothers movies and that I really enjoy, which is that they are completely unsentimental about children. You know, in movies all the time, children are like, oh, they're so innocent, they're virtuous, they're pure, they're representative of the purest parts about ourselves. Children are pure angels. Like, in, you know, in City of Angels, like, the girl is like, oh, my my favorite thing before I died was pajamas. And, oh, listen to me, I'm growing. That, like, children are wise beyond their years and, you know, they make life worth living and blah 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 and the Cohen brothers do not do that at all ever yeah they're like this uh, <laughs> kid is a thieving wreck and is gonna convince me to destroy someone's car yeah the they're the only children in this movie are um like tilda swinton's patients and they're all like grumpy and obstinate it really made me think about the horrible teenage children and serious man and how we kind of touched on that a little where you know his son is like stealing and smoking pot and his daughter is constantly just like washing her hair and complaining about her uncle's cyst. Like children in every single Coen Brothers movies. The only time any of them have been sentimental was in Raising Arizona, and that's like the plot. And it's a baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The baby can't really do much. <laughs> yeah. But they're really unsentimental about like the way we think about kids and how kids are often presented in movies where like there's nothing there's nothing special about them. <laughs> they're just there and they kind of suck. Yeah, they're just as bad as everybody else, but they're small. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's what uh, I watched since we last met. Allie, what have you been watching? I watched one of the uh, movies that came out this year, uh, Beavis and Butthead Do the Universe. <laughs> I saw that. Yes, I enjoyed it. It was a hit here around these parts. Obviously, it is not as good as Beavis and Butthead Do America because that is... A great classic American comedy, but I still enjoyed it. Just really into it. I feel pretty confident that unless one of us picked this for the the podcast, Boomer will never watch that movie before he dies. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the only circumstance. Your suspicions are correct. (laughs) Not a Beavis and Butthead fan? I just floated past me in the stream, you know, at the time in my life where I probably would have enjoyed it the most. And I, I never latched on to it, and I have no interest. It's like Jackass that way, where like I understand the appeal, I guess, but it doesn't appeal to me, and no one can convince me that it will. I don't want to convince you, but I do want to say that both of those properties in particular have only gotten better with time. And like the Jackass movie that came out this year is still one of my favorite theatrical experiences I've had all year. And part of what makes it great is that they have been doing it for so long and there's like a pathos and like a gravitas to the proceedings now that wasn't there when they were like 20 years old and stapling their balls to stuff. Like uh, the fact that they're old men and like survivors and lifelong friends like mean something to that now that didn't mean anything with Jackass one and two. 
And I would say even with Beavis and Butthead, like Ali just said, the movie's not as good as their first feature film. But the TV show also came back um, on Paramount after the movie came out. And this one, and I think 2014 was the last time they did it. Yeah. I think are actually better than the original run of the show. Like the jokes are funnier on the TV show. Um, And part of that is that they've evolved with what teenagers watch. So like in the 90s version, they would openly riff on music videos in that MST3K style where they're like commenting live on music videos. But most kids don't watch that anymore. (laughs) So like the 2014 version had them riffing on MTV reality shows like Jersey Shore and My Sweet 16 and whatever else was on at the time. And this newer version that just came out this year, they're watching a lot of just like weird YouTube clips and TikToks <laughs> and like instructional videos. I can't wait um, and doing to the same check this shit. out because I watched the movie, but I haven't watched uh, the new show. So I'm very excited now. Thank you for, for really building this up. <laughs> the movie was good too, though. Yes, but like, I, I don't know. I, really I, feel liked like, it. I feel like they were trying to promise this like sci-fi spin on the Beavis and Butthead adventures and like bringing in like the multiverse and stuff like that. But they don't really do anything with that. And it ends up just being just another road trip movie like the first one. Yeah. Um, without much sci-fi interference. Yeah. I think uh, the one so thing like they really do is, is with smart Beavis and smart Butthead, which kills me. <laughs> <laughs> by relatively the way. smart. Yeah. Relatively smart. <laughs> Still uh, not smart by their universe's standards. But it had me cracking up. I really enjoyed it. I needed a good laugh. And then I also checked out 1987's The Hidden. Ooh, I, don't know if y'all have seen I love one. this movie. I've thought about recommending it for this podcast multiple times. It just yes. got Criterion Channel approved this it month. It did. It did. That's how I watched it. I was like, oh, dang, Criterion Channel has an 80s horror thing. This is awesome. And then I uh, read the synopsis and I was like, this sounds great. And it is a lot of fun. It has big X-Files vibes, doesn't it? It does! Such X-Files vibes. Uh, Yeah, so the plot is basically there's this cop in LA where suddenly this regular businessman goes on a crime spree and drives around in a Ferrari and has just suddenly turned into a murderous bank thieving heavy metal listening monster. And it's worth noting that this person is... Jason Beji from Monkey Shines. Yes. It is worth noting. And, <laughs> uh, yes. Then, uh, Kyle McLaughlin comes in as this FBI agent, of course, like he does. An FBI agent that seems off. And, uh, is like, this crime is this. This is what's gonna happen. And you discover that it's actually an evil alien switching from body to body that just really likes fast cars, heavy metal music, and a lot of money. And uh, I love that. That sounds great. I was very into this bad aliens priorities. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's absolutely ridiculous. So yeah, I I recommend it for sure. Very X-Files-y. You know, as anything from the 80s featuring cops, you could read it as propaganda but i feel like that's such a simplistic reading of a movie that is absolutely insane and it also stars a young woman who we will probably want to note was in a very important role on a television program in the 90s set aboard a space station 
We are, of course, talking about Claudia Christian from Babylon 5. <laughs> See, I haven't really uh, watched a lot of Babylon 5, so I'll... I'm always trying to I'll get... I'll let you sing its praises. I'm always trying to get a premature ringing of the bell is what's happening here. Yeah. I gave you a slide whistle when you said Babylon 5. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I My hand was hovering so over glad. that bell, though. It was, it was a very tense moment for me over here. I'm so glad. Uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that's been my viewing lately. Brandon, what have you been watching? I got a few new releases. Uh, I just got back from the theater a few minutes ago, actually. Uh, I went nice. to see Vesper. It's a very low budget, like French Lithuanian sci-fi movie. Wow. I don't know if y'all have seen trailers for this. No. No. Mm-mm. I didn't either until the broad theater uh, down the street from me. I was advertising like, you asked for it. We got it. Vesper. I was like, I had no idea what Who that is. All I do this? all day is pay attention to what movies are coming out. So uh, I'm surprised by that. Um, the only critic I follow who was really into it was Tasha Robinson, um, who I really adore. And she's usually got great taste. Uh, this didn't le- let me down in any way. It's uh, set in a future where like biohacking got out of control and these like experimental plants get out of the lab and basically like terraform the earth. And uh, there's just these roving bands of like children living in these shanty towns who are like trying to biohack the already biohacked plants to um, make life livable again on the planet. What's interesting about it is that it's super low budget and shot without any green screen effects. Ooh, that's awesome. So it's got all these like creepy crawly little monsters that are like, you know, halfway mutated and um, it's got all these like drone robots and uh, just like really like lived in world building, very grimy and um, very practical tactile effects for the most part. Really impressive stuff on that front. If you're a nerd about sci-fi world building, I think you would be really into this. Um, I'm not so much. I was going to say, you know I am. (laughs) I I will say like, about halfway into the movie, I was getting a little bored, but I was never n- not impressed by how it looked, you know? Like, the whole time I was, like, really into the whole, like, what what they were able to achieve on what looked like very little money. I, I guess I would compare it to both The Girl with All the Gifts, because of all the fun guy stuff in that movie, and then also Annihilation, but, you know, on a much, much more intimate scale. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds off. much more like the book. Of Annihilation and well specifically the third or second book but yeah I wouldn't be surprised if that was an influence yeah and there's there is something just sort of like eerie about the fact that you know it's like this all French and Lithuanian crew but it's filmed entirely in English because they were trying to get like this like wide appeal out of it um and things just feel slightly off in that way where you can't quite tell why people are pronouncing certain names and nouns right in a way that you wouldn't expect but that only kind of adds to how like eerie and off-putting everything is. So it's a very uncanny movie with some like good gross-out moments with the weird creatures and bugs that triggered that like spine-tingling discomfort, you know. And if you're if you're really into like what-if scenarios in your like sci-fi and fantasy fiction, I, th- I think it's like pretty good for that. All right, I have even less to say about Smile, which I saw in the theater. It was oh. fine. I mean, I check in with these, like, mainstream horror movies every now and then. Um, If there's one in October and I'm, like, not busy that day, you know? Yeah. Uh, But I don't Mm -hmm. don't watch this kind of, like, jump scare horror stuff very often. Um, 
the best I can say about it is it feels like the world or that industry has like gotten better since the last time I watched one of these, which I'm thinking of lights out from 2016 where like the aesthetics of that one was still that like moody gray fluorescent lit, like saw style, like visual patina. And then this one, uh, smile does a lot of the same, like grotesque views of, mental illness (laughs) and it's like touching on the same subjects just as irresponsibly for the most part but um in the years since we've had like this you know surge of really smart horror movies Mm -hmm. and it borrows from all of them like the plot is very it follows the uh living with grief thing is very babadook even the smile is kind of like the babadook's big smile uh you know like you can sit there and like come up with a whole checklist of different horror movies that this is borrowing from, but it just has better stock to pull from than like this kind of movie would have had six or seven years ago. It really, all of the trailers really make it look like a IFC midnight production. (laughs) That is not inaccurate. Okay. (laughs) But it's been like the number one movie in America the past two weeks. I haven't seen any trailers. I just know about the weird gorilla marketing they did. And I was like, I don't know. This doesn't seem like my thing. The guerrilla marketing is actually brilliant. I think yeah, it is brilliant. The movie itself. But <laughs> I also am just like, if this is what you have to do to get people to see your movie, I don't know. It worked. They're number one, baby. Yeah, can't argue with the results. You uh, can't. Have you seen the marketing for that, Boomer? Is this where people are going and like standing behind like newscasters and stuff? Yeah, like at the yeah. Today Show recordings or at baseball games, they're just like smiling at the camera very intensely. I mean, like holding the glare a little too long. I haven't caught any of it like in action. So I guess. Oh, me neither. I've seen like the news coverage of it is amazing. So I don't know. If you're looking for like a dumb horror movie, like it's got some good jump scares in it. It's got a few really uncomfortable moments. It's got those creepy smiles. (laughs) But um, I don't know. You could watch something smarter. Yeah. I'd even say the barbarian has more going on thematically and visually than this one does. Okay, good to know. And uh, the one I'm surprised that no one else got to before me in this conversation was I watched the new Hellraiser that came out this Friday. Oh, yeah. So I almost I watched was it planning last on night. watching it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this week, I'm going to watch it. But yeah, how was I it? I will offer this up. Um, if anyone else wants to write about this before I get to it, um, you can, because I don't have a lot to say about this one either. <laughs> mm. I think... Maybe the fact that I did watch it on a Friday night and like ordered a pizza and like made a meal out of it was maybe the wrong approach because it's not like a fun over the top Hellraiser movie. It's like, you know, it's it's from David Bruckner, who directed The Ritual and The Nighthouse, which are both very somber yeah. dramas that just happen to have like these like horror elements in them. And this is the same way. It's like this like very drawn out, murky drama about addiction and like, um, you know, family domestic squabbles and then about an hour and 10 minutes into it the cinebites start showing up and they are gorgeous like all of the cinebite designs are great everything looks really cool there's a bunch of just fucking grotesque degloving events in the last like 40 minutes Ooh. that like really made me squirm Ooh. but uh <laughs> it's also just like shot in these like murky browns and like low light and joyless and 
no one's like drawn to the box because they're too horny for it. They're like drawn to the box as like a weapon that they can wield on other people, Mm-mm. which I feel like kind of misses the point of what Hellraiser is. Mm, yeah. There were some things I really appreciated about it. I didn't love it as a whole and kind of just made me want to watch some of the direct to video sequels that came out after Hellbound and see what goofy stuff I was missing because I feel like there's a lot of fun things you could do with this lore. And this one yeah. was more interested in the lore itself and um, really methodically dealing with it as a real world drama, which feels very restrained for the kind of, you know, infinite pleasure, infinite imagination the scenario offers you. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, as much as a lot of the new horror is fun and great. That is one thing that it has done to horror movies is it's grounded it. It's more like, this is a family trauma unless here's this weird supernatural stuff going on, which, you know, can be good, but... Yeah, I wouldn't trade Hereditary or the Babadook for the world, but like they have had a negative influence on... Horror movies that aren't as smart as they are. I'm so glad you knew which two I was referencing. Also, like, literally lighten the fuck up. Like, Mm -hmm. I I mean, totally lighten up, but also literally I cannot see what's on the screen. Yes. Uh. (laughs) Yes. I'm, my eyes are not great. But yeah, I think lighten up tonally because even Ari Aster's movies have humor to them. It's dark, fucked up humor, but it's there. But yes, please light your scenes. I mean, especially watching it on Hulu without like the premiere Hulu account, whatever the upper tier one is. Mm-hmm. So I'm watching these like super dark scenes where I'm like squinting and I got the brightness turned all the way up on my TV. And then it'll cut to some ad that's like in a white void, <laughs> quite literally yelling at me about some product I don't need. Yeah. Um, it's just yeah. like, that was the biggest jump scare of the movie was being like, shocked <laughs> by like some advertisement for shampoo. Listen to me. You think of yourself as a kind and decent man. You love your wife. But you also have hostility toward her. Instead of expressing that hostility, you create a character to express it for you. But that character is only a creature of your imagination. It is not real. As I've said before, you're like an actor who loses himself in his role. You've lived with this character day after day. You visualized his appearance, dramatized his acts, thought his thoughts, so much so that you've come to believe that he really exists. But he doesn't. This week... I had our crew watch The House That Dripped Blood. It is a 70s British horror anthology featuring Christopher Lee and um, Peter Cushing. I really enjoy this one. I think it's a lot of charming fun. You know, it's nothing horrific or gruesome. It's very, you know, British, made-for-TV-ish feeling. Good, goofy, wholesome fun. Like most horror anthologies, there's four different sections, and uh, I don't know if y'all want to tackle it section by section, or just give your feelings as a whole, the vibe. I kind of felt the same way about this as I feel about all Amicus 
movies, which is the studio that produced this. I wasn't like ever scared or thrilled or even surprised by anything that happened in it at any second. <laughs> but I was entertained the entire time. They're kind of like hammer horror. Like they're kind of like just comfort viewing for yeah. this month. Like you kind of want to enjoy it under a blanket with a big cup of tea, you know? Mm-hmm. Basically what I did. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've only happened to see maybe three or four Amicus movies and I was looking them each up and apparently there's like two different kinds. Um, first of all, I always forget that British people call them portmanteau movies instead of anthologies, which I find wow. both adorable and offensive at the same time. <laughs> 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 but um, so Amicus had two modes. Like they either were adapting EC comic stories or they were adapting published short stories from Robert Block who um, wrote, psycho right and mm-hmm. i've only seen the robert block ones so i've only seen asylum and torture garden and this one and maybe one other and they all feel very samey to me but not in a bad way it's just like like i was just saying like comfort viewing it's like oh yeah this is spooky season vibes i know i'm not gonna be like taken aback or like you know it's not gonna keep me up at night after the movie's over i'm not gonna be like freaked out but i will see a little rubber bat I will see someone with vampire fangs. Mm-hmm. I will see uh, Christopher Lee lit up in that like green and red cross lighting that you can only find in like EC Comics pages. And uh, I'm going to have a good, wholesome, spooky time watching it. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about it, too. I just, I need my comfort viewing. If I don't <laughs> meet my comfort viewing quota per month, I fall apart. I love that each one feels like it's already like riffing off another existing horror story. So it's funny to like have it be like an established author doing it. Um, You know, like obviously the first one with the writer moving into the house to write a book, like Shining, you know, it's like the first thing you think of, which was out before this, which once again, I was saying it last night, but if your partner is a writer and has you move to a house to finish a book, specifically a horror book. Don't do it. Don't move with them. <laughs> Let them go on their own. I can only think of one example where the person who moves with the author ends up being the killer. Leave her to heaven. That's the only one I could think of where the girlfriend like moves in with the writer to write his book and then she's the problem because <laughs> he's like too fixated on the, the story. Uh, she wants all of his attention. But yeah, for for the yeah. most part, this one plays out in the like the most stereotypical way. I mean, she's the problem here too. But fair enough. <laughs> that that's the the surprise. I guess. Yeah, and then she's not. <laughs> I love the Dominic makeup and look. It's so silly and so ridiculous. It feels like something straight out of Monty Python. So he's writing a story about a serial strangler. Yeah. And he sees this strangler around, but there's nothing like particularly monstrous about him. He just looks a (laughs) little ghoulish. He's got bad teeth and he looks underslept and his hair is tussled. Yeah. (laughs) That's about it. Yeah. So British on a bad day. He looks like he could have played bass in uh, Joy Division or something. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, really enjoyed that one. And then the second one features Peter Cushing moving into the same house as the first couple and he's just there to you know live out his best life end of his days starts to get lonely reminisces about a lost love goes into town goes to a wax museum run by an absolute nut 
and sees this wax sculpture that reminds him of his past love. Friend comes to town, also becomes obsessed with wax sculpture. Uh, I like this one because despite the fact that Peter Cushing is like a spookily proportioned man, he's not the bad guy. He's just trying to live his best life. Listen to his music, read his books, garden, and I think I think that's great. <laughs> good for him. I, uh, <laughs> I think that's a good point. Like the overall point of the movie, and you know this because the realtor for the house tells you directly breaking the fourth wall in the last minute. Yeah. He's like, the lesson we all learned today is the house like reflects back at you like the worst qualities of yourself. Yeah. And I don't know, you have this like guy who's like slightly misogynistic, I guess. Uh, yeah. The writer. And then you have later on this man who's afraid of his witchy daughter and so forth. But like, yeah. what does Peter Cushing do wrong? He just like really is into this hot lady that everyone's into. Yeah. And then, yeah, he gets beheaded for the trouble. So I don't, yeah, I don't really know what, what his like sin was that the, uh, Sort of tales from the crypt logic of him getting punished for his like wrongdoings. I, I'm not sure what that was. Well, Just being too horny. <laughs> well, I think he and his friend fought over this lady. Oh, that's true. They did covet. So yeah, they were they were covetous. All right, you're right. Off with his damn head. Yeah, <laughs> I was sure. mistaken. But that one just the guy who runs a wax museum is kind of great. Just like spookily looming into the shadows. Ready to pounce. <laughs> How does he make money? We don't know. Uh, stealing the wallets of the customers' Eva heads, I guess? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And it got me to thinking, like, I've never been to a wax museum, and I feel really sad about it. The only one I went to was in Austin, Texas. It was downtown. Oh, wow. It was, like, this, like, weird museum of weird objects, and it had, like, some, like, wax figures of, like, Dracula and the werewolf, and then... You go. They shuffle you upstairs, and mm-hmm. uh, it was, there was a one-person geek show where this guy like put like wow. a needle through his That's nose. That's the Museum of oh the Weird. Gosh. Yeah. That's the one. <laughs> it was just me and Cece on a weekday. Like I don't even know if it was like afternoon yet, sitting in these two folding chairs watching this man mutilate himself for tips. It's a very strange experience. Yeah, I've. I don't even think of it as a wax museum. I think of it as more of like a um, sort of like a local Ripley's kind of place like you know where you go somewhere and there's like a anywhere you go that they're in like branson or or dollywood you know there's a <laughs> ripley's believe it or not there where they have like a spinning drum that you walk through that makes you dizzy makes you feel like you're falling to the yeah. right anywhere that one of those is there's something like this where there's so there are wax figures you're right but it also has like you know fiji mermaids and um, stuff like that. I'm surprised that <laughs> apparently none of us has been to the wax museum that's in New Orleans. No, I no. didn't even know we had one. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's there anymore. Oh, okay. It was there when I was living there 10 Ain't years ago. But... What a terrible place for a wax museum. Yeah, I exactly. just fucking melted. It's just melted. Austin wouldn't be any better, though. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Speaking of wax, wax comes into the third story as it well. Does. In a very pivotal way. Yeah. As we were talking before... Christopher Lee moves back to the same house where everything terrible happens and is afraid of his witchy daughter and hires a governess and tells her nothing, of course, like you do when you hire someone to watch your child. And yeah, he meets his demise at the hand of his spooky child. She forms a wax 
figurine of him. I guess it's a puppet, not really a voodoo doll, but it's similar. Hey, the poster promises vampires, voodoo, vixens, and victims. Yeah. So if that's not a voodoo doll, then I was lied to. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. the poster promised me voodoo. You're right. No, <laughs> I guess it is voodoo. It's just, you know, there's other forms of that sort of thing than just uh, voodoo. This was my favorite segment. Like, by far. Yes, it's such a good one. The kid is so creepy and cute. I remember it being my favorite. Um, sweets to the Sweet. I like the yeah. Wax Museum, but it reminded me a lot, I remember when I first saw it, of the um, episode of Amazing Stories, I think it is, that's based on the Stephen King short story about the grandmother who wants to, like, take over the child's body. Oh, yeah! That this also has mm-hmm. that coming through. And then this also, in its own way, seems to have, like partially inspired the the witch episode of the first season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer with the mother trying to live through her daughter to the point of yeah. even like flipping places with her and there's like wax and fire in that one as well. I got vibes of the innocence, especially from a governess oh, yeah. and a oh, terrifying yeah, absolutely. child, which I love that movie and Deborah Keir. This lady's not Deborah Keir, but she's definitely going based off of that whole vibe. I would say it's the kid who makes the segment. Oh, like, yes. She's so good. The whole actor, like, she's flips from innocent to evil pretty convincingly. Mm-hmm. And she has that, like, not slack-jawed, but, like, just sort of open mouth. I don't know what's going on here. I'm just I an inno- innocent little anything. baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then she, like, makes you feel like you're burning to death. Yeah. Well, duh. Do you think she would have attacked him if he wasn't such an asshole to her? Like, if he had a healthy so. fear of his daughter and just, like, raised her well- Instead of, like, raising her with contempt? You know, I don't think so. That's my personal belief. Like, I think if he actually knew how to deal with his kid, he would have been fine. Because he's the one that gets punished. No one else does, really. Yeah. The governess is just like, uh, I'm out. Especially because he's, like, straight up, you know, resenting his wife as well. And he's just like, I was terrified of her. Like, did you kill your wife? What happened? I'm confused. Did she burn because she was a witch? I I don't know. They never really explained that, and that's fine. I just, there's big, like, the witch burned vibes, especially with the kid being afraid of fire at the beginning. I do like that the last two segments go into the supernatural, too. Yes. Because the first two are like, oh, no, you think it's supernatural, but actually something totally normal is going on here. I mean, not that the wax museum figures are, like, completely normal, but it's it's explainable. Yeah. Uh, and then the last two are basically, like, witches and vampires are very real. <laughs> and you need to deal with that. Yeah. Which perplexes the cop in the wraparound story who's reading all these case files. Yes. But I don't think the fourth one is as good as the rest of the movie, the vampire segment. Yeah, the vampire segment, which features uh, Doctor Who, and he's a, like, horror movie actor who gets to this set finds it cheap and awful, goes to find his own authentic vampire cloak at this uh, creepy costume shop, and it's very authentic, and uh, turns him into a vampire at midnight every night. I feel like that entire segment, the entire point of it, was to put a hot, buxom lady in vampire teeth Yeah, for British yeah. men to be sexually excited by. In a way that like feels very quaint, like in a, like an old like Benny Hill sketch kind of way. Yeah, like, it's like a very old fashioned pin up look. Um, and there's never actually anything like horny about it. It's just like uh, I don't know. 
It's just like a very stereotypically hot lady and vampire teeth, and then it's over. Yeah, I think, you know, the other point is to have Doctor Who being ridiculous. Because he just, you know, runs around being over the top and goofy and this actor. Um, he does take one yeah. pot shot at Christopher Lee, uh, where he says, you know, yes. there are no good horror movies anymore. We used to have good ones like Frankenstein and Dracula. Dracula. Not the one with the new fella. Uh <laughs> Shots fired at his co-star, who he never steers the screen with here. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And then, you know, the wraparound story, we get back to the cop, and he's just... He's been trying to find this missing actor, and uh, goes to the house at dark, at the realtor, saying, We can go in the morning! The power shut off. But, of course, you know, being a cop, he doesn't listen to reason. And, uh... Yeah, he goes to the house, explores the basement, which we have not seen before in this house. And I love that we finally get this terrifying basement. And in the basement, he finds this crypt with two very nice new shiny coffins in it. And, you know, the vampires from the segment before jump out and uh, get him. And that is the end of the movie. Well, besides well, the, the en- realtor. The end is the uh, realtor telling you what you just learned. Yeah. <laughs> and the lesson of the day was, was... Don't move to this house unless you're chill. <laughs> yeah. And it makes me wonder, like, what would mine be? I'd be eaten by my cats, wouldn't I? Which I already expect to happen after I die, but, like, in a horrific way. I would be uh, hypnotized by a television in my living Ooh. room and just found, like, starved to death uh, weeks later. I don't know. Maybe you would crawl in. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Yeah. If we're allowed to do supernatural stuff, I'd be eaten by the TV. Reverse ring style. I do like that um, we cite things that feel like an X-Files episode a lot on here, but mm-hmm. um, this movie is quite literally an X-Files anthology where, like, yes, there's, like, a filing cabinet, and they're like, here's all the uh, stories from yeah. this house that we don't know what to do with, so we threw it in this file down at the bottom. Yeah, here's everything that happened and is confusing. Good luck. <laughs> so it reminded me of that, and also, you know, the house from this year. Right. Another horror anthology all set in a single house. That's a house. good connection, yeah, because the, these anthologies rarely have enough of a link like that. Like, we talked about Creepshow not terribly long ago. Yeah. And they're linked by like being in the comic, but they're not linked by a singular singular location like this one is, which gives it a, a sort of interesting where it's like it's less of an anthology, even though it is, but it, it feels like it's not as much, you know? It's more of a narrative about this location that draws people to their dream. Right. And I don't think the house has that much personality, really. Like, I'm glad that they kept reminding me it was in the same place because I didn't always remember that. Uh, but yeah. I will say the home decor has a lot of like taxidermy birds, which um, carries over to Robert Block's Psycho. Yes. In that that had all those like taxidermy owls, at least in the Hitchcock version. I've never actually yeah. read the novel, but it was just kept reminding me of the, the, the home decor yeah. in Psycho. I was like, is that the same house? Did it get moved over across the yeah. ocean? Quite possible. I don't know. I overall was like fond of this movie. I, I didn't take it very seriously in, in any way. Especially, there's a part in the Wax Museum segment where um, Peter Cushing is like just sort of looking at all the odd exhibits and the lighting's getting weird. And then yeah. there was like a slide whistle on the soundtrack over yes! and over again. <laughs> I can't believe I forgot to make a note and be like, oh, Brandon's going to love the slide whistle in this soundtrack. I hope uh, he's so been at that practicing. Point, <laughs> at that point, it's like goofy fun, right? Like, yeah. But then the witch segment comes after, and I feel like. 
sweets to the sweet is that what you called it earlier like, yeah that yeah. one really is a, a cut above the rest yeah and that's kind of how anthologies work like you have your favorite yeah maybe there's one that like doesn't work as well as the the other ones which to me is the uh the vampires but overall you know you have a good time and whenever you're not enjoying a story you just wait 10 minutes and it's over uh, there's yeah another one Right behind it. And, you know, there's built-in breaks, you know? You can go grab a snack. You can go to the bathroom. I think that's why I like anthologies. It's very, you know, comfort-watching, low-pressure. And some stories just work out better as segments. I certainly wouldn't want to see a full film of Stephen King being taken over by a moss. (laughs) No. Although my friends on uh, what We Love to Watch just covered Creepshow for their episode this week. And they were very pro Stephen King segment in a way that like made me want to rewatch it. I was like, maybe I was not giving it its full due. Some people are. Um, and you know, blessings to those people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will say they're also doing an episode this month on two amicus anthologies. Um, they're not doing House of the Drip Blood. They're doing Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror. Ah. So they're a more um, studious bunch. I'm sure they'll give you more of a rundown of the studio's history and uh you know its context within british horror at large but i think this one is pretty indicative of the amicus style like this felt very familiar to the other two i've seen yeah it feels very british very cozy like you know gathering around not a campfire but hanging out listening to somebody tell a spooky story it's nice have a cuppa <laughs> this is our hocus pocus too you know <laughs> yeah i had coworkers uh rushing home to watch that with like a cheese board uh the night oh came my out. god and they never watch horror movies i'm like okay at least you got one thing you like yeah i had a uh, yeah one of the families i watched uh asked if i had seen it i was like no not yet and their daughter when asked like oh is it very scary and she was like no it's kind of sad <laughs> <laughs> and it's because uh, one of the characters doesn't get to have a caramel apple. That's what was sad about the movie. So everybody be warned. Pocus Pocus 2 is kind of sad. As long as you're snack focused. Yeah. which <laughs> That's your main drive. I kind of am. So I, I agree. It's kind of sad. I do think things like this, like if you don't watch horror movies, you could sit down and still have a spooky fun time and even a good laugh at it which you know once again we were talking about horror kind of losing its sense of humor which is why it's kind of nice to go back to stuff like this that doesn't really take itself seriously unless christopher lee's involved in which case how can you not yeah and then the segment after that has the uh buxom vampire that turns into a rubber bat that like flops around on a string yes it's kind of hard to like take it too seriously when that's like the next thing up. Yeah. So I think it's nice to go from very dour, like this is a horror movie about trauma and we're lit poorly to, you know, this house is messed up. Don't move here unless it's a spooky okay house. With- yeah. <laughs> you're making it sound like the movie version of that um, spooky sounds Halloween tape that came from like McDonald's. Yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I think we all have a place in our heart for that. You 100%. Know? I still own a copy. Oh, really? I have this record that's just like a bunch of like kids songs that have the lyrics changed to be Halloween related. I have something like it's that beautiful. too. 
It's like, is the flying purple people leader actually a Halloween song? I guess I'll allow it. It's a monster. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yes, it is. But also, I don't know why, to me, the flying purple people leader seems like a summer monster. Is it because they made that TV movie about it in like the 80s with Dustin Diamond? And that's like a sort of Saturday morning summer type movie? You know, it did get name dropped in the biggest horror movie of this summer as it well. It sure did. In a very gravelly tone. Yeah. <laughs> Tom Waits does the purple people eater. <laughs> Which had me laughing before he got to like the titular purple people eater in the theater. And then I realized I must be older than everyone else here because no one was laughing. <laughs> so I don't know. Which movie is this? Nope. Oh, nope. Yeah. I still haven't seen it. Seems great. Well, like I said in the top of the episode, uh, you can go to SwampFlix.com to see more recommendations of horror movies for this month. Uh, we have a full list of things you can stream right now. And also a couple of recent reviews from Boomer. Both his review of Barbarian and Don't Worry Darling will be up by the time you're listening to this. And we'll be back with more spooky atmospheric horror stuff next week. Um, we're going to be talking about video nasties. Ooh, uh, James has been watching a lot of movies just off of that list, and we all picked one. Uh, so very gruesome, upsetting, offensive, pornographic kind of Halloween stuff. So actually very different from the wholesome amicus horror we just talked about. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Halloween has many shades and flavors. It does. Either, you know, you're a sicko or you just want to hang out and watch a rubber bat around we're definitely going sicko mode next week like without a doubt (laughs) next episode is sicko mode that'll be fun for everyone (laughs) everyone but me (laughs) not participating (laughs) talk to y'all then bye everybody bye goodbye alexandra Came through trippin', came through trippin', trippin', diamonds on my wrist, they trippin', ice. Came through trippin', trippin', came through trippin', came through trippin', diamonds on my wrist, they trippin', ice. Came through trippin', came through trippin', came through trippin', diamonds on my wrist, they trippin', ice. Came through trippin', came through trippin', came through trippin', diamonds on my wrist, they trippin', ice. Give me a little something to remember. Tryna make love in the sprinter. Yeah. Quit you drop a nigga like Kimber. Looking like a right swipe on Tinder. Yeah. Shit on these hoes. Yeah. Let up my wrist on these hoes. Now nah, I look down on these bitches. Yeah. I cool like I'm on stilts on these hoes. Fuck your baby daddy right now. Right now. And the maid got cake by the pound. Go down, need it up, don't drown. Mm. Make the cheese in a bow, how it sound. Yeah. I got that gushy. Yeah, that's a fact, but I've never been pussy. Yeah. I think that bitch is pajamas with footies. Woo. One MVP, and I'm still a rookie like who? I gotta work on my anger. Might kill a bitch with my fingers. I gotta stay out of Gucci. I'm finna run out of hangers. Is she a stripper, a rapper, a singer? I'm busting blacks in the belly, my singer. Right through your hood, like bitch, I'm the mayor. You not my bitch, then bitch, you're a Came through drippin', came through drippin', 